Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea. And Ada. And today we are talking about voting barriers and what it looks like, what it has looked like, and what it hopefully will no longer look like. Twenty twenty marks one hundred years since the passage of the Nineteenth Amendment, which states the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. However, this is largely incorrect. BIPOC women, which is Black, Indigenous, and people of color, were not given the right to vote until much later. And the suffrage movement, while really important that it's 2020 and we should really celebrate it as a momentous occasion for all women, really didn't end up giving all women the right to vote. So that's important to remember as we think about this important historic year. And thinking about voting rights and BIPOC voting rights in general, it was really a generational fight for both, spanning nearly a century to get these rights in place. In 1866, after the end of the Civil War, a coalition including Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Frederick Douglass formed the American Rights Equal Rights Association with the goal of securing the vote for all American citizens, irrespective of race, color, or sex. That same year, the first petition for universal suffrage, which is voting rights for women, was presented to Congress. But when the government moved to enfranchise Black men with the 14th and 15th Amendments, while continuing to exclude women, many suffragists were indignant. The racism exposed by the debates over these laws festered for decades, and BIPOC suffragists found themselves fighting a difficult battle for equal treatment on two fronts, as women and as BIPOC. For a long time, the history of the suffrage movement has been told mainly as a story of a few famous women, like I mentioned earlier, Elizabeth Cady Stanton as mentioned above, but it's really important to recognize the number of BIPOC women that were involved in this struggle that are really not recognized in our history books. There were tons of women who were making suffrage a reality, and African-American women such as writer and orator Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, the community organizer Juno Frankie Pierce, and the journalist Josephine St-Pierre Ruffin, Elizabeth Piper Ensley, Ida B. Wells Barnett, who championed both suffrage and civil rights, Native American women such as Suzette La Fletch Tibbles, and Zikala Sa, queer women like poet Angelina Welm Grimke, and the educator Mary Burrell. Latina women such as Jovita Idar, who protected her family's newspaper and the rights of Mexican-Americans, and Asian-American women like Mabel Ping Ha Lee, who led thousands of marchers in a 1912 suffragette parade in New York. So it's really important to remember all of those names as we're thinking about our history as women and being able to vote. And it's also important to notice that before the ratification of the 19th Amendment, only eight states allowed um, women to vote in them. So it was a long fought battle. And then talking a little bit more about what was not included in the suffrage movement, while there were interracial suffrage organizations, for much of the movement's history, they were the exception rather than the rule. Many white groups, particularly in the South, refused to accept Black members and leaders of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which was formed by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and those other white women that I mentioned earlier, and other national organizations fearful of losing support in the region, followed racist demands to exclude BIPOC women. So, BIPOC women formed their own groups to fight not only for the rights to vote, but also for greater equality and justice for their communities. 
And then talking a little bit about moving into BIPOC rights to vote, literacy tests and poll tax didn't explicitly mention race or sex, but were used to target certain voters. And also to talk about that a little bit more, violence, intimidation, lynchings kept people away from the polls. Some registers flat out refused to process papers or handed Black women blank sheets of paper to vote or register with. Literacy tests left in 1940, only 3% of African-American adults registered to vote in the South because many African-Americans, Black people, and women only had five years of formal Jim Crow education. They just did not have the same access to education. And so education was used as a way to exclude women and BIPOC people from the polls. Disenfranchisement also left back Latina women and laws like Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and the Immigration Acts of 1917 and 1924 blocked Asian immigrants from citizenship, therefore preventing them from the right to vote. Native American women, Asian American women, Latinx, African American suffragettes who had to fight for their own enfranchisement long after the 19th Amendment was ratified. The suffrage movement did not advocate in any way for indigenous women. So Native American activists such as Zitkala Saw continued to organize and advocate with white suffragettes. Asian American suffragettes such as Dr. Mabel Ping Hugh Lee worked with the Native American women to try and gain rights for women of color in general. In 1912, when Mabel was just a teenager, she led a contingent of Chinese and Chinese-American women in one of the biggest suffrage parades in U.S. history. And I'm going to read a quote from her now. I want to make certain you all know that this is a period quote from her. So some of the words necessarily today we would not use. In the fierce struggle for existence among the nations, that nation is badly handicapped, which leaves undeveloped one half of its intellectual and moral resources. It wasn't until 1975 that there was extension of the Voting Rights Act that aimed to prohibit discrimination against language minority citizens, expanding voting access to women who rely on languages other than English. And so just thinking about everyone, especially immigrants that come to the United States and legally become citizens of the United States and not having the ability to vote because of a simple barrier like language there's still ways that people are trying to exclude people who speak another language who are American citizens. Talking about what the implications are today for the suffrage movement, the suffrage movement, like other social movements before and today, often reflect the racism, nativism, and other prejudices that pervade. And I think that's a good place to move on to talking more about BIPOC individuals and voting in general. So I'm going to hand it off to Chelsea to address some of those things. Voter ID addresses, poll taxes, literacy tests, and more. For many communities, their voter ID does not necessarily guarantee them their right to vote. For Indigenous voters on reservations, they don't always have a formal address and therefore it makes it harder to vote, their ballots are not accepted, or their voter ID doesn't match. For low-income communities, and again, Indigenous voters, what may be considered adequate ID for other communities is not considered adequate for them. And this, honestly, is a, a form of gatekeeping for voting overall, and it makes it so that your representation is skewed. 
I just want to add to that. I don't know if you used the statistic yet, but in 2016, 9% of Black respondents and 9% of Hispanic respondents indicated that they or someone in their household was told that they didn't have the proper identification to vote. That basically means that there's another hurdle put in place for you to go get your vote out. And in 2016, we know that it was a very close race and 9% of Black and Hispanic voters would have made a difference in that election. And maybe some of them didn't have the chance or decided that it wasn't worth the amount of time to go get new IDs and then have to go through the whole process of voting. And so that's a big deal. It's messy. Moving on to literacy tests now. Literacy tests are interesting because we know that they target Black people and those who are not considered affluent or literate. So even the most literate of people have trouble with literacy tests because they are not made to be clear. I was reading a literacy test this summer, an example of one, and it was a roundabout of confusion, honestly, because there were sections where it had sentences such as, read this sentence and pick out the one word that doesn't make sense. And the whole sentence doesn't make sense. The whole sentence does not qualify to be a sentence in the English language. But yet they're asking you to pick out what doesn't make sense. Or sometimes there were super easy ones. How do you spell the color black? Which you're like, okay, this is too easy. But then they could also go from write your name in print to sign your name to look at these numbers and pick out this one underline this word in the sentence circle this word in the sentence cross out this word in this sentence circle the whole sentence so i feel like there were people that just decided to sit together and say what can we do to make it that much more confusing for BIPOC voters. And then something that I learned last year from taking an education class through the political science department was that after Brown v. Board, basically after that happened, you have to have integrated schools. And so Virginia got really mad about this and basically shut down every public school in the state and used taxpayer dollars to fund private schools. And these private schools could, you know, exclude black and brown people. And so we're having these taxpayer funded schools that, you know, black and brown people are paying for in their taxes that only include white people. And some kids didn't get education for the entire year. And so it's it's really hard to not think that this is tied directly to removing BIPOC people from voting with the literacy tests because this is a blatant way that they suppressed education for people for an entire year and it targeted Black schools specifically. And then to think of, on top of that, there were poll taxes. If you're a sharecropper, you don't get cash until the harvest comes in. Then you didn't quite know when to pay it or where to pay it because the rules weren't clear. And I think that is something people should pay attention to. For Black and Indigenous people of color in the U.S., the rules were and are never quite clear. And it was almost like generational knowledge, like we talked about before. It was a generational fight for BIPOC voting rights and women to get out to the polls. And it was also generational for white voters because their parents had been able to vote before. They knew how to do it and they knew what the rules were and white people were making the rules. So it was like this cycle of suppressing and voting was an exclusive club. So just like Chelsea said, it's so hard to vote if you've never even seen someone in your family be able to vote before and to even like trust the system. 
One of the things that definitely stood out to me was that Native American citizens were denied the ability to vote until 1924. How are you going to take land from these people and then tell them, well, we're on your land. This is our land now. And you have no say in anything, right? But when they did get the right to vote, and especially even even now, there aren't polling stations or drop boxes or anything in their community or near them. In Arizona, the size of reservations are actually pretty large, but they're not conveniently located for Native Americans to access. For example, Tahoma Udom Nation is 2.8 million acres, and the polling place is pretty far away and difficult to access. And one in five people on the reservation don't have access to a car. That's for Native American population. For Black and Hispanic communities, one of the things that feed into that is their work. Their work hours are valuable. And when it comes down to it, if they have to sacrifice a few hours of work that may turn into six hours of standing in line over six hours of pay, they're not going to sacrifice that when they could be putting food on the table. That's a good chunk of their income. And when they have to weigh voting over feeding their families, it's not much of a choice or an option. So when a white person goes to their boss and says, hey, I need this amount of time or I need to leave early or come in late so that I can go vote, it's a much different response to a Black or Hispanic worker asking them the same question. And I think there are Black and Hispanic people that don't even ask that question because of the stereotype or the outlook of being looked at as lazy, a slacker, not responsible, do it on your own time. It's not realistic. It's interesting to think of because in 2012, the turnout of Black voters exceeded that of white voters for the first time in history. 66.6% of eligible Black voters turned out to help reelect Barack Obama. And it's seeing that representation in your government that says, this is what's going to make me vote. But also, people shouldn't have to wait for that representation to feel the urge to vote. And if there weren't so many barriers in place, for example, I hope you guys have heard of Texas because Texas makes me mad. This morning, Texas voters suing to overturn an order from the Republican governor restricting the number of ballot drop boxes in each of the state's counties to just one. So this is the one drop box ballot site in Harris County. This is a huge state, and only having one draw box per county is 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 basic voter suppression. I, I don't know that there is another way to characterize this. They reduced the amount of drop boxes for ballots. Some counties went from 11 drop boxes to one, and that one drop box is not going to be in the low-income community. It's going to be in the white section of the county where it's not realistic for the other communities to travel out of their way. I'm talking about Harris County. And Harris County has 20% of, I believe, Texas's Black and African-American population. 20%, 19, I believe it's actually 19.09, so we're rounding up, 19.09 of Texas's Black and African-American community is in Harris County. And from what I've read, Harris County now has one drop box. That's not realistic. No, and what Chelsea's talking about is this year, y'all. We're in the month of voting. 
This is not something from 20 years ago. This is this administration has decreased access to voting in Texas. And this is all in reaction to, oh, there's fraudulent mail-in ballots are fraudulent. So therefore, they want to lessen the amount of drop boxes in order to be able to monitor them. They can't monitor all of the drop boxes. So to fix that, they're going to lessen the amount so that there's less to monitor. But they've made the barriers to voting that much more for low-income communities. Now you have to take the bus, drive further, do things to go out of your way to go into a community that is not in your vicinity just to vote. Personally, it's frustrating because I'm lucky I don't have to deal with that. Think about it this way. I don't think you understand, first, how valuable mail-in voting is. Because with mail-in voting, there is no voter ID barrier. You can take out your ID and stare at it all you want, but there's no one to validate it. It's you. Um, there is no driving to the polls. There is no standing in line for what you think will be two hours because they always advertise an empty polling station with no one in line. And then all you see on social media is somebody standing in line for six hours because they just want to vote. There is none of that. It's you sitting at your kitchen table with your knowledge and the voters pamphlet and bubbling in and then making sure that you wrap up your ballot nicely and you put it in the mailbox. That's it. But yet here in 2020, in the month of October, there are states that are continuing to restrict, and we're going to say it as it is, it's voter suppression. They're continuing to suppress the right to vote. It's 2020. The Civil Rights Act was passed in 1965. Your grandmother knows somebody who was not able to vote or your grandmother was not able to vote. It's important that you realize how small our timeline really is. And when you really think about it, Black people haven't had the right to vote for that long. Indigenous people haven't had the right to vote for that long. And we are still facing the barriers that you think are not there. It's interesting that BIPOC women formed their own groups because that that hasn't changed, that BIPOC communities are having to advocate for themselves. That in so many things that are advocated for and fought for, these communities are still neglected. They're still not included. For example, I don't know if any of you remember seeing this, but when a lot of the speaking out and marches were going on for climate change, one of the images that were circulating was of a young group of activists who had spoken and they cropped out a young activist that was Black. And she, I think, went back and shared the full photo and was like, I'm, I'm here also advocating for the same things that you're advocating for. I think part of that is like the narrative to make it seem as though Black people don't care or that they are not as involved when we are. We just often have to fight separately just to include ourselves in the conversation. And it's ridiculous. This relates to literacy because language is such an important aspect and expanding voting access to women who rely heavily on languages other than English should have been done in the first place. Just like BIPOC communities and suffrage should have been included in the first round, other languages should have been included because I feel like that's the biggest literacy test. Something needs to change. And I, and that is one of the things I went on a site this week that when I clicked on it, mind you, I'm putting this in there, it was not a U.S. site. When I clicked on it, it offered four different options and languages for it to be read in. 
And I think that's amazing for some people. And with our technology now, it's as easy as changing the language on your phone. Then anything will show up as that. But for a site to say, here's a list of languages is amazing. It's inclusive. And it does not ask the question of, can you read this? It asks the question of, how do you want to read this? And that's something that was not and often is not asked. Tune in next week to meet some cool community activists we have interviewed and to learn about more ways to get civically and politically involved, both before and after the upcoming election. Remember, today is the last day, October 26th, to register to vote online in Washington State. You can go to votewa.gov to do that. And if you have any questions about registering to vote or the voting process in general, feel free to reach out and ask us at ASWW underscore OCE. Our DMs are always open to questions and we will do our best in helping you with the voting process. Another great resource is the Student Engagement Hub, which will be open on Election Day, November 3rd from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. We will be there to help print ballots, help with same-day voter registration, and help answer any voting-related questions you may have. Additionally, the AS Student Senate elections are being held this week from Monday, and I believe they close on Friday. To vote, you can go to WIN or the Western Involvement Network, and you can cast your vote for the students that you would like to see representing you in the upcoming year. Most of these students have social media platforms, and I encourage you to take a look at the students in your college or the students at large to get a feel for what their goals are and what they would like to do if they are elected to Student Senate. We have a lot of great candidates, and I encourage you to take a look. Thank you. This is Ada. This is Chelsea. Signing off from our executive order. Thank you.